Turn with me, please, to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Continue our walk through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are almost done. A few more weeks. This morning we will look at all of chapter 9. Sermon's title is Life Brings Death. Keywords, worshipers in training, are evil, joy, and wisdom. Now, in many ways, chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes is a summary of uh, much of what we've covered, as seems to be the case with Solomon time and again through Ecclesiastes. Hopefully you've recognized by now, I'm sure you have, that it is somewhat of an understatement to say that Solomon is a very frustrated philosopher. He asks a lot of questions about life, and he's unwilling to believe uh, to, he's unwilling to accept the simple uh, mantra that we hear so often is that you've just got to believe. You've just got to have faith. Solomon wants answers. Solomon has questions. And he's seeking to know what is right and what is true, where purpose can be found, where meaning is. Beyond the simple phrase, you've just got to believe. You've just got to have faith. And so all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, we see Solomon seeking to answer this question, what is my meaning? What is purpose? Why is the world here? And why am I here? And we see in the midst of it, Solomon is dealing with what we as individuals all struggle with the most. And that is God's sovereignty. It may be interesting that we would say we struggle with that the most, but we might believe God's sovereignty. We might affirm the sovereignty of God, but by the way we live our lives day by day, we deny God's sovereignty, we show that we don't actually believe as firmly as we thought because we raise a lot of questions about reality. As circumstances arise, as we have questions, we are really asking the question, is God really sovereign over my situation? As I encounter suffering and trials, is God really sovereign over this? And this is the question that Solomon keeps raising, and he keeps going back to the answer, yes, of course, but what about this? And through all the questioning, Solomon's faith does prevail. He affirms God's sovereignty, but he honestly wrestles with some practical implications and applications of the sovereignty of God. So let's begin in verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. So right out of the gate, Solomon is affirming the sovereignty of God. He never questions who is in charge. You don't see that ever throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything in life passes through the hands of God. Remember we saw that in chapter 3 as he talked about a season for life and death, a season for smiling and frowning, these types of things that Solomon continued to point back to. 
that there is a season for everything. It's not simply that these things happen, but they happen by the sovereign will and power of God. So everything in life passes through the hand of God. As you see that phrase time and again in the Bible, the hand of God. It's talking about God's power, God's love, God's supervision, God's control. Truly, God does, as the song we've all learned from childhood, God does hold the whole world in His hands. God decides for each of us what will be for us throughout our lives. And I know that statement in and of itself tends to raise eyebrows, but all of Scripture's point to this reality. God is absolutely sovereign over every aspect of my life and every aspect of yours. And so notice Solomon is simply affirming the reality that God is sovereign. He's not trying to explain how it all works together. And of course, as we often do, He's trying to figure it out. But he has no answers for us. I'll just tell you that up front. And we ask a lot of the questions that Solomon raises, and probably many more. How is it that God is sovereign and I'm still responsible? How is it that God is sovereign and yet I still make choices? How is it that God is sovereign and I have a will? Now, theologically, we can resolve some of these tensions, sort of. But rather, let's simply affirm these realities simultaneously as true. It's sort of like Jesus being 100% God and 100% man. If you can explain that, I would like to hear how that works. Very much the same way. How is it God that God is sovereign over every aspect of every part of my life? And yet I am still responsible. I still make decisions. I still have a will. It's a, a difficult tension, but it is a necessary one that the Bible creates and we would do well not to seek to resolve. They are simultaneously true. So Solomon simply asks, as he meditates on the sovereign hand of God, does God love me or does God hate me? Now in the Bible, these, these two statements, the love of God and the hate of God, when they're applied to God, it is in essence, does God ex- accept or does God reject? For example... We have the words of God, for Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so Solomon is asking this of himself, does God love me or does God hate me? Jacob or Esau? So how does he answer it? Well, he points out this reality that we simply can't appeal to external blessings and curses, right? We have examples of this all through the Scripture. We can't simply look at what goes on in someone's life and say they are blessed with external things or circumstances, therefore God loves them. They, on the other hand, have a very sad lot and therefore 
God does, is rejecting them. Think, for example, of Moses. We would conclude, although a sinful man like us all, Moses was a godly man. But in the end, Moses did not walk into the promised land. Was he blessed or was he cursed? The prophet Jeremiah was beat up, stripped naked and thrown into a ditch. Was he blessed or was he cursed? John the Baptist, a godly man, led the way for the coming of the Messiah. His head ended up on a platter. The Apostle Paul, stoned, left for dead, bitten by snakes, shipwrecked, and on and on and on. Can we look at his external circumstances and say that God loved him or that God hated him? What about Jesus? Crushed for our iniquities as he bore the wrath of the Father on the cross. Was he loved or was he hated? And so the test is not external. We can't look at circumstances on the outside. The real test is wisdom. It is a heart attitude of thankfulness and faith. Solomon is dealing with the very real issue of where we stand before a sovereign God. He knows absolutely that our faith is in God's hands. Everything about us is in the hands of God. As we just prayed earlier, when we wake up and when we lie down, when we are created in our mother's womb and when we breathe our last, it is all in the sovereign hands of God. And the question then is for all of us, is God for us or is he against us? Psalm 48.10, God's right hand is filled with righteousness. Psalm 95, 7, we are the sheep of his hand. John 10, 28, no one can snatch us out of his hand. And yet we see in Hebrews 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So it's not enough to say that we know we are in the hands of God. Everyone is in God's hands. The question is, is he for us or against us? Is he our friend or is he our foe? Because circumstantial evidence does not answer these questions. In Solomon's eyes, it seems that everyone is treated the same by God. In fact, we might sometimes assume that the wicked are better off than the righteous. We've looked at that previously. Remember... In chapter 8, we saw that. Let's read first verses 2 and 3. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. 
Now remember, in chapter 8, Solomon assures us that in the end, everything will go well for the righteous and the wicked will be destroyed. But that's the day of judgment. What about now? Why is why does it seem why does it seem that God is blessing those who are wicked and cursing those who are righteous? Let's be honest, as we look at external circumstances, many times that seems to be what we can conclude. And we've seen Solomon make that conclusion several times. It appears as though this might be the reality. And I think one of the great things about Solomon is that he's asking these questions that a lot of us are afraid to ask. Remember chapter 8 and verse 14? There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. It's a sort of reversal of fortune. But now he tells us in verses 2 and 3, it's not a fortune reversal per se, but all suffer the same misfortune. This is one reason why external indicators don't work. We can't simply look at the blessing in someone's life or apparent blessing in someone's life and simply conclude that they are righteous. Now Solomon outlines the lives of two kinds of people in these verses. Notice one kind he calls righteous, good, and clean. These are the ones who offer sacrifices to God. They live their lives unto the Lord. The other is the one he describes as wicked, evil, unclean. They are worldly. They are self-focused. They are seeking their own righteousness. They are ungodly. And so there are the righteous that make a committed effort toward the Lord by His grace. And there are the wicked who refuse covenant relationship with God. In other words, he's simply pointing to this reality that there are those who honor God and there are those who do not. And yet it appears that one is no better off than the other. Famine, earthquake, disease, economic downturn, it happens to all of us. So we cannot separate the righteous from the wicked based on circumstances and occurrences in the world and the outcome of those situations. Sometimes the end result looks very bad for the righteous. Now, of course, eternally, we understand God is putting it all in place for our good. The scriptures tell us that. But as we're in the middle of it, we're not seeing that reality. We're trusting in it. We're hoping in it. We believe God is going to do what He has said He will do. But as we look at our circumstances, we must realize that God sends rain on the just and the unjust. So externally, it is impossible to know who has God's eternal favor and who does not. And this is very, very frustrating to Solomon. It's another indicator to him that this world is just really screwed up and broken and fallen. It doesn't make sense to him. It doesn't compute. 
He calls it an evil thing. And then he ends with pointing out man's condition, that we are desperately wicked. Again, the end of verse 3. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. It seems so futile, right? We have to understand Solomon's frustration. It's dangerous ground to stand on this reality because if we don't cap it off with the right conclusion, we're going to ask, what's the point? Nothing matters. And it seems from time to time that that's exactly what Solomon is saying. We have to consider this in the whole realm of what he is writing through Ecclesiastes, and we'll see in a couple weeks how he caps all of this off. So God is sovereign. We cannot see who God is for or against. He makes it very clear that all of us have wicked hearts and that we all die. (laughs) So the only certainty is that God is sovereign, your heart is wicked, and you die. And the true reality of it all is that all we can be certain of is death. And as we like to say in our culture, death and taxes. It is a twisted, sick, mad, mad world. You can eat well, you can stay fit, but you're going to die anyway. And here's why it's frustrating to us. Because in our hearts, as those created in the image of God, we have an innate sense of justice. And we want to say it's not fair. We deserve better. Really? The thing is, Solomon is describing exactly what we deserve. As enemies of God? Those who have committed cosmic treason against the creator of the universe... Solomon is describing exactly what we deserve, and yet we hate so much. A hellish life that ends in death. That's what we deserve. And the fact that we have any days of joy, and the fact that any of us, when we die, get to see God and dwell with Him in heaven forever and ever, we don't deserve that. That's grace. So Solomon is in our faces once again saying, remember, you must die and you deserve it. But, look at verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Verse 4 is a proverb of sorts. In other words, would you rather be a dog or a lion? Would you rather have an owner who pulls you around on a leash and ignores you most of the time? Or would you rather be the king of the jungle? Even though it's a cat. (laughs) Solomon assumes 
that our response is that we want to be the lion. A lion is noble. It's especially true in biblical times. A lion was the insignia of the house of David. It is the emblem of the Messiah. Few animals in the first century were more despised than dogs. Very few were liked or taken as household pets. They were considered filthy animals. It's probably our equivalent to a possum or an armadillo. If you've ever been to a third world country, you've seen the mangy scavenger dogs like Solomon would have been accustomed to. We get the idea of the perspective. Remember when Goliath said to David, Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? They treated them with great contempt. And let's admit, even if you're a dog lover, you're not going to the zoo to see the hyenas. Unless the lion is dead. So Solomon's point is it's far greater to be alive and a dog than to be a dead lion. Why? Now I admit, Solomon seems, as you read through Ecclesiastes, he seems to be a little bit schizophrenic because previously he said it's far better to be stillborn than to live in a world of suffering. And now he's saying it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Well, notice, he's not denying the afterlife, but he's simply pointing out the reality that death ends life under the sun. Verse 6, no more engagement, no more participation in this life. And so death brings ignorance. The dead know nothing, at least of what's going on on the earth. Death brings irreparable loss. The dead do not gain earthly reward or heavenly reward for those outside of Christ. Death brings oblivion. No one remembers the dead when they are gone. Even the earthly emotions that make us feel the most alive, our love, our hatred, our envy, they all disappear in death. But why, Solomon? If, if we have an understanding of afterlife, why say it is better to be alive than to be dead? Remember, the Apostle Paul says it's far greater to depart and be with Christ. Well, he gives us the answer in verse 5. For the living know that they will die. And this may seem like a small comfort, but it is good for us to know that we will die. Because it gives us time to prepare for death and for eternity. And that is a grace of God for all mankind. But we must admit this is perhaps the most pessimistic portion of all of Ecclesiastes. The book doesn't answer every question it raises, nor does it claim to. We must look beyond Ecclesiastes to the gospel of Jesus Christ And the promise of the resurrection. Yes, we die. Yes, there is great loss in death. But if we are in Christ Jesus, there is a resurrection. We will be raised with Christ. And so Ecclesiastes helps us to understand living life under the sun. How we live and serve God when we don't have all the answers. If I was to put a banner purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes, that's what it would be. Solomon is 
helping us to understand how we live and serve God when we don't have all the answers. So it's important to take Solomon's words in context of the entire Bible. But I don't want to neglect his point. Life is short, and the time you have to make it meaningful and useful is quickly passing. In our small community, we've had several examples of this over the last few weeks. Death comes quickly. What are you doing with your life? What is your purpose? Are you living on mission for the sake of the kingdom? There's a short poem I repeat to myself often. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What is the trajectory of your life? Does it really matter? What are you spending the majority of your life pursuing? And when you die, will it matter? I hope so. I hope so. So what do we do in the meantime? Verse 7. Go, eat your bread in joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Sheol, the grave, death. Now these passages that Solomon points to pursuing joy are sprinkled all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. They really provide us a good balance to the book. Solomon has a lot to say about vanity and striving after the wind. And yet we shouldn't be surprised that he understands joy. For all of our difficulty, all of our despair, there's many things that we can enjoy in this life, even though it's bittersweet. And if we fail to experience either of these tastes, bitter or sweet, we fail to experience life as it should be lived in a broken, fallen world. So Solomon saw vanity under the sun, but he also understood joy. This is a very balanced view. On these verses, Martin Luther wrote this, Solomon is not urging a life of pleasure and luxury characteristic of those who do not sense this vanity, for that would be putting oil on fire. But he is speaking of godly men who sense the vexation and troubles of the world. It is their downcast hearts that he wants to encourage. Now notice how Solomon talks about joy. What does it look like? Ultimately, we can summarize these verses and say it looks like enjoying relationships that God has given you. Eating together. Enjoying good conversation over good wine. Laughing with each other. But notice who stays at the center of it all. God. God is at the center of our joy. 
Why should we enjoy eating and drinking and working? He's told us several times, chapter 2, it all comes from the hand of God. Chapter 3, it is God's gift to man. Chapter 5, God keeps us occupied with joy in our hearts. So Solomon may be a frustrated philosopher, but he at least acknowledges the gifts that come from the hands of God. This is most clear in verse 7. Go eat your bread and joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. This isn't a blanket endorsement of everything we do as if God approved of our wicked deeds, nor is it a sort of statement about our acceptance before God. He's simply pointing out life's enjoyments, eating, drinking, friends, laughing, fellowship, conversation. These are not guilty pleasures, but they are good things. They are godly pleasures. At least they ought to be. A glad heart in God and his good gifts have God's approval as part of his gracious will for our lives. This goes back to the series we did at the beginning of the year. Solomon's pointing us to the reality that joy on this earth is found under the guidance, under the truth, the reality of God living and dwelling amongst us, and that we're living life together. We cannot go it alone. So Solomon mentions three pleasures that God has given to his people. The first is contentment. The pleasure of eating and drinking. Now notice he says in verse 7, go. This is an imperative. It's a command. Eat your bread and drink your wine with joyful hearts. Not as gluttons, not as drunkards, but with joy-filled hearts. And so we have to ask the question, are we content in fellowship with other believers? Are we seeking it out? Are we longing for it? That's a challenge to all of us. Are you spending occasionally good money on good food and sitting at a table laughing for hours and enjoying God's great gifts together with your brothers and sisters in Christ? I hope so. And if you're paying, I'm glad to go with you. (laughs) So Solomon points us to contentment. Secondly, comfort. Verse 8. The white garments he mentions were the party dress and attire. Telling us, put on your tuxedo and an evening gown and dance the night away. Put on sweet perfume. That is the anointment of the oil that he talks about. Because looking good is important, but smelling good is too. Especially in the hot climate they were in. So Solomon is telling us, prepare yourself for a celebration, for a feast. Enjoy the comfort of a celebration that again has God right at the center of it all. And thirdly, companionship. Verse 9, enjoy life with the woman you love. He's talking about your wife, men. Solomon is commending the daily pleasures of marriage and family life. So let me ask you, men who are married, when's the last time you and your wife went out on a date? I'm not talking about your anniversary, that doesn't count. When's the last time you spent time with her as your best friend? 
Do you value your wife as a person? Do you treasure her as the gold that she is? Do you pursue your wife still? Do you speak words of affection to her? Do you listen carefully to her without immediately pointing out her faults and trying to fix her problems? Now, I get it. Your wife or your husband, ladies, may not be easy to enjoy. But I know you also. And you're just as difficult. You married them. Enjoy them. Love them. Serve them. Laugh. Be together. How? Again, what, or better, who is at the center? must be God. So Solomon exhorts men like so many other places in the Bible. Men, love your wives. How long? Well, verse 9. This is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. He's saying we do all of this all the days of our vain life that he has given us. And so, in other words, until we drop dead. Men, pursue your wife until you breathe your last breath. Now, granted, it's not necessarily a very romantic statement that he says, love your wife and then you die and then things move on. But he's a realist. One of you is going to die first. You ever thought about that? Husbands, wives, one of you will have the task of burying the other. And so Solomon says, for now, before that grieving, before that pain, enjoy life together. So this is Solomon's point. Life is short. So love others while there is still time. Enjoy what God has given you. He also mentions the pleasures of work in verses 9 and 10. Whatever your gifts, whatever your calling, God has given you good work to do. It is a gift from God, so enjoy it while it lasts. I've talked to some of you and you think your job is preparation for life in hell. It's not. Your work is a gift. So do it. And verse 10 says, do it well. Fulfilling your duty and working hard for your employer pleases God. Work with all your strength. Do not be lazy. Do not be idle. And do not rob time from your employer. These are godly truths. The Puritan William Perkins said, We must take heed of two damnable sins. The first is idleness whereby the duties of our callings are neglected or omitted. The second is slothfulness, whereby they are performed slackly and carelessly. Charles Spurgeon said, The idle, idle people are tempting the devil to tempt them. Verse 10 is the perfect remedy to this, because he tells us what to do and how to do it. Work hard. Use your gifts. He also gives us a word of warning. We're talking about contentment here, a joy-filled, meaningful life. Look at what he says in verses 11 and 12. Again, I saw that under the sun the race 
is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. There are two warnings occurring here. First, for all your well-laid plans, one event can destroy it. One event that you never saw coming. So it's better to put your faith in something beyond the sun rather than under it. Where in an instant you can get snared up in it like a bird or hung up in it like a fish in a net. Circumstances will happen. They will knock the ground out from underneath you. So where is your hope? We must put it beyond this world or we will fall. The second warning he gives us, he's warning against leaning on our natural abilities, our gifts, our, our skills. Now, there are certain things that each of us excel in that others are not naturally inclined toward or, or good at or able to do at all. Now, I know most of us since day one have been told, if you put your heart or your mind to something, you can do it and no one can stop you. But listen, I will never, ever, ever be a doctor or a surgeon. It is not in my competency. I don't do science, I don't do math, and I don't do people's body functions. This is not how God wired me. I catch a clip of those talent shows that are on TV, on YouTube every now and then, and see people in these singing competitions. Some of the worst singers you've ever heard in your life. Somebody lied to them and told them that if they try hard enough and set their minds to it, they could be the next Mariah Carey, despite when they practice, all the dogs are howling in the neighborhood. So all of us have natural gifts, natural abilities, and not all of us can do everything simply because we want to do it. And whatever those things are, based upon God wiring us in specific ways that make us more naturally inclined toward whatever it is. So the word of warning here is no matter how successful you are, no matter how gifted you are, no matter what you're inclined toward, natural gifting will never bring about contentment because no one is given the natural ability of contentment. Just ask any parent about their kid. Was their child born content? No, in fact, for a few months it seems as though if they're not sleeping, they're crying to let you know I'm wet, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I hate everything. It's a tough couple of months for everyone. Contentment grows as we mature. Contentment is a gift from God. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's not in our natural abilities that bring about success, that bring about personal glory, that bring about money and power and fame or, or whatever. This is Solomon's word of warning, and most of us will never hear it because it's exactly what we're banking all of our hope on. What can I do to make more so that I can get more, consume more, have more? It is a foolish, dead-end trap. Using the gifts that God has given you to bypass Him as the source of contentment and instead resting in those things that He has given you to not be an end in themselves. 
It's foolish and full of frustration as you walk that path. This is why some of you have great businesses and careers, but you still aren't content. This is what Solomon's talking about. Trust in God. Look to the Lord. Rest in Jesus because everything else is going to fail you. And what you do well isn't as great as you think it is. Now, from verse 13 to the end, Solomon is going to tell us a story. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. So here's what happens. There's a small town. There's not a lot of men there. He's referencing warriors. There's not a lot of warriors, not enough to fight off the enemy. So the army is on the outside and the great army besieges the city. Remember, the cities were surrounded by a wall that kept people out, but it also kept people in. So the army on the outside is not letting anything or anyone in or out. And the plan is to starve them to death. So they besiege a city, they shut off their ability to get in food, to get in water, to get hurt people out, and they just sit there and they wait for them to run out of resources, they run out of resolve, and then it should be a pretty easy battle in the end. So Solomon saw this happen and thought it was a great plan. They've laid siege to the city that doesn't have any warriors in it at all. No one's going to come out and fight them. Look at verse 15. But there was found in it a poor wise man... And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered the poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. So the city's about to go down. A poor wise man within the city has the wisdom to deliver the city, to keep her from falling, but he is despised and ignored, and no one even remembers who he is. And so in this little illustration, there are big ideas that a people accept, but just because everyone accepts it doesn't mean it's right. And there are small whispers coming from the most unheralded unheralded messengers that are right. And the biggest, loudest message is not always correct. And so the wise man died and was forgotten and his wisdom was rejected. Look at verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. A little foolishness. A little bit of people deciding that their way is better than God's way or that they're smarter than God or that God just doesn't understand their specific circumstances, which is always one of my favorites. Like, you surprise God. As if God's saying, you're right, I've never seen anything like this before. It's pointing to someone, what you're doing right now is sin. Yeah, but my situation is a little bit different. Oh, I didn't read that little clause at the bottom of the page that made an exception for you out of all of human history. We want to justify our sin. And we work against God when we seek to do so. 
And so Solomon says a little folly outweighs the goodness and the riches of wisdom and honor. All it takes is one husband to say, forget what the scriptures command and forget the work that it would take. I am not loving my wife the way that the Bible says I should. All it takes is one woman to say, I will not forgive. I will not work this thing out. It takes one of us to say, I don't need to seek the Lord in this situation. I've got it all figured out, and I'm going to make it work. I trust my abilities to do what I am going to do. It only takes one of us to say, forget the wisdom of God. I'll follow my own wisdom. And if we do that, his story tells us that the city will fall. The danger is that the scriptures say that there's a way that seems right to a man and in the end it leads to death, destruction. It goes bad. There's a way that seems right to us, but it goes wrong in the end. Instead, the Proverbs point us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. It seems to be the conventional wisdom of God that he should shame our strength by accomplishing things not through our strength, but rather through our weakness. And you see it in Scripture over and over and over again. Okay, so what? Listen, chapter 9 is not a complex chapter in the Bible. It's very simple. And we can just ask of ourselves, am I... Am I doing this? Am I walking in deep relationships? Am I celebrating the goodness of God in dinner and drink with good friends that were gifted to me by God? Am I learning the scriptures and following the Lord in obedience? This is wisdom, and anything outside of this is like a rotten apple in the barrel. Men and women, are you pouring into your marriage? Those of you with jobs, are you seeking to make this life matter by working hard? Doing it on purpose and living every day like tomorrow's not coming because it might not. Where are you seeking your contentment? You can pursue comfort apart from the Lord. You can pursue contentment in all the things that the world will offer, but it will fail you miserably in the end. You can even do it with all of your might. And you can set your heart and your mind on it and you can try, 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 try. You can. But you will soon be dead and you won't have actually found any rest in any of it. Soon. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe 10 years. Maybe 40 years. And we might think we have time, but just ask a 40-year-old if 40 years is a long time. It's nothing. And then you're gone. Man, I... Pray that we would pursue significance in this life together. That we would find meaning and depth and purpose and godly wisdom and that we'd be willing to set aside the supposed comforts of this world to walk in faithfulness and fruitfulness together with joy and obedience and wisdom that comes only from the Lord. For those of us who are in Christ, He has accomplished far greater than anything we can hope or imagine. So are we resting and trusting and leaning on and following Him? If you're not a Christian, what are you depending on? What are you finding your hope in? 
How are you seeking to find meaning in the trajectory of your life? The call of the scriptures is that you repent and turn to Jesus. The only source of meaning and satisfaction that any of us will ever encounter in this broken, fallen, and twisted world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the hard words of Scripture. Thank you for making so plain to us the hard realities of life in this broken world. Thank you for making very clear to us that when it's all said and done, we are but a minuscule blip on the screen. Our life is short. And most of what we pursue really doesn't matter at all. And thank you for calling those of us who are in Christ out of the grave, giving us new life that our lives do matter, that there is purpose, that there is meaning, that there are truths that are worthy of pursuing and seeking to live out day by day, that the kingdom would be advanced, that your glory would be revealed, and that your people would laugh together, would weep together, would enjoy life together, eating and drinking and spending the days of our lives walking with one another toward the great celestial city. You, God, have given us far more than we could ever think of, imagine, or even know to want. Help us. Help us to not be idle. Help us to not waste our days that we would make much of the life and breath that we have, that we would live on purpose for your glory, that we would experience true joy and contentment as we commit our lives each and every day to live it as our last and do all things to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.